You are listening to Space Time Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. So imagine a universe in which there is a single basketball. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man. You finished. thing just went on. My little thing just went on. My uh, my grandmother neuron is firing. <laughs> nice grandmother neuron. <laughs> so, uh, hello everybody. I'm Pete Mandick from William Patterson University, and this is uh, Space Time Mind, session two. All right, the doo doo session. Yeah, number uh, <laughs> number two. So, but it, uh. <laughs> yeah, anyway, somebody uh, who I've never heard of uh, posted a, a review of the podcast on iTunes. And, uh, wow, so, so by the way, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. I didn't know we were on iTunes. Yeah, we're on iTunes now, and anyone listening to this, um, if you haven't already, you should go to iTunes and, and try to give us five stars if you can. What was the original review? Did they, how many stars was it? Four stars. Four fucking stuff. What? What? Why? What happened? Where's well, <laughs> so they wrote. They wrote like a paragraph, and it was pretty glowing. And they they were talking about how like it was entertaining and interesting, and the music was weird but intriguing. And they said the only uh, uh, oh, and they were excited by the fact that we're you know in the New York area, we'll have access to to people like Hakwan Lau and and uh, Ned Block. And, they specifically mentioned Hakwan. Yep. Cool. Yeah, there was like a list of like, you know, like big name, obvious uh, New York-based philosophers, and then Hakwan Lau. And I'm like, yeah, Hakwan. <laughs> yeah. And it, we should get him on. Um, and uh, But then they said their only, their only complaint was that they wish there was a more um, uh, female and minority perspectives represented, but perhaps that will be addressed in the future. Yeah, oh, very cool. Yeah, that's, you know, we were just talking about that. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's fair criticism. But well, you know, it. I mean, we'll get right on it. It's true because I, you know, it's funny. You, you understand. There's different ways of understanding this problem, um, and one way is understanding it conceptually. And of course, you know, uh, it's pretty clear that the history of philosophy is filled with a bunch of white dudes, and that the the majority of the voices that you hear are white male uh, voices. And you know that's that's pretty much established fact. So that's not to say that every good philosopher from history um, is a white male philosopher. But if if you look back at the canonical history of it, that's those are the names. So you know, obviously, I knew that already. Um, but but recently, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but recently I've been recording these uh, lectures for my online philosophy class. 
Yeah. And um, and so in the course of doing that, I, I went and got a, pic, a bunch of pictures of all these people. <laughs> and there's just a line of old white dudes from yeah. like Aristotle <laughs> to Frege yeah. to concert. So it really brought it home in a different way, you know. And, you know, white dudes are fine. I, I happen to be one of them. But uh, um, it would be nice to uh, include some other voices. So I appreciate right. that review, actually. Yeah. And um, I appreciate the recommendations of Hawkwan. He would be a great person, obviously, to talk to about some stuff. So yeah, and there's definitely. others as well. So we'll definitely, we'll definitely take that to heart and work on that. Yeah. Yes. Cool, man. So then we'll get that. That extra star, I want to see that fifth star. We will, yeah. We got to work. We got to work for it, though. It's not going to come easy. It's not going to come easy. <laughs> we need, you know, we need the space time mind army to come out and and help roll we up the sleeves, the... put the stone, the nose, <laughs> and grind it. So, right. uh, so you know, um, did I wonder if we should mention the lost session, or should we never mention that? Let, we should mention it because I have I if, uh, am an idiot, <laughs> and it should be my punishment. That we Mostly, I brought that up just because I wanted to say you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, look, I deserve it. <laughs> I'm, I'm an idiot. Go ahead. Why don't you elaborate on my idiocy? Oh, it's not. It's just. It's not idiocy. It's just another in a long line of uh, technolo technological domination. <laughs> of philosophers by simple yeah. devices. So we, we met last week um, and we had a really great discussion about the nature of space and the history of all this stuff. Um, and then we found out at the end that it wasn't recording. <laughs> right. And it was like an hour and a half. Yeah. 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 It, um, it was like, it was actually one of the best conversations you and I have had ever. And we can say that because now no one can ever verify that. So I agree. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but look, we're, we're uh, you know, we are the experts on this. Exactly. This is our beetle in the box, man. That's right. <laughs> By the way, I, I read this really hysterical thing that uh, Marcus Arvin, do you know the philosopher Marcus Arvin posted yeah. on, uh, what's that website? Philosopher's Cocoon? Well, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a allegedly a contributor of that website, but I haven't ever written a post. But I did originally. Uh, it's supposed to be for like early career philosophers. Yeah. So my, he, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I uh, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yes. Uh, anyways, he uh, he was saying uh, he posted this thing for April Fool's Day, which was yesterday, happy uh, day after April Fool's Day. Uh, and it, it was uh, you know kind of like a philosophical onion article, and it was the uh, local local philosopher uh, figures out refutation of Wittgenstein's private language argument. <laughs> right, but they couldn't. But the joke was they couldn't uh, figure out how to express it. They couldn't express it anyway. Did you see this? Yes, I did see it. Yeah. Oh man, that's <laughs> see, to me that's like just. I love philosophical humor. Um, you know, the philosophical humor is funny, but you know, since you brought up Marcus, uh, I I like one of his papers actually. I don't know if you've read any of his actual philosophy or if you just read that blog or whatever. Um, but he has a paper called A New Theory of Free Will, which is in the Philosophical Forum. I'm not familiar um, with it. Okay. It's, well, it's pretty cool because it, it takes the simulation argument idea, uh, you know, which we discussed extensively last week. Oh, like the Bostrom uh, thing? Um, yeah, basically the Bostrom thing. Yeah. And it, 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 what the paper does is it basically argues that um, if you update it to a different kind of simulation account, uh, basically what's uh, modeled on peer-to-peer 
kind of internet gaming consoles where there's kind of a um, you know a cloud-based uh, program and then a bunch of uh, computers that are accessing that cloud-based program and then there's issues of how they coordinate you know so if you're playing World of Warcraft or whatever and you're walking around in the same virtual space um, you need yeah, the computer has to be able to coordinate that you both see the tree on the right hand side and all that kind of stuff and so what's interesting about his paper is that he tries to argue that if you have this peer-to-peer -peer model um, that you can account for a lot of interesting things from quantum mechanics, for instance, like uncertainty and uh, um, uh, some of these other more startling, surprising things. So, you know, it's an interesting idea, and I like people like Marcus um, who are willing to explore kind of weird ideas that, so there's, in, in a serious way, though, not in oh, a weird, okay. like, spooky kind of, ooh, it's weird, let's sit around and think about how weird it is, but in, like, let's be serious about it and think about this uh, what follows from what and what models we can use. So, and and there's some. Uh, he's one of the a group of younger philosophers I think who does that. Yeah. So Chalmers so, is one, and so is Eric Switchkabo. But anyway, yeah, that's cool stuff. And it, maybe it should get a name like uh, Future Philosophy or something like that. But uh, but let me ask you about the Arvin thing. So in episode one of Space Time Mind, we were talking about um, versions of the simulation hypothesis where it might be an interpretation of Barclay's metaphysics where, you know, you were proposing we think about this in terms of, like, the hard drive that everything is simulated on is God, or God is the hard drive. So with the Arvin thing, is it like there's these multiple hard drives? There's these multiple, multiple they're causally interacting, but it's not like it all boils down to a single hard drive. Is that kind of the gist of it? Yeah, it's multiple... Uh well, memory systems accessing one larger memory system, which is sort of the ultimate hard drive, if okay. you will, the central, the central cloud-based program, which uh, is running, and which it basically all of these, you know, if you're sitting there at your PlayStation yeah. and you're, uh, you're, you're running through a maze with your friend um, and shooting at other people who are running through that same maze, then, you know, your computer is, is running a program, but it's also accessing via the Internet Right. This cloud-based program and coordinating with all of these other consoles in order to generate this common um, virtual space of which you guys can freely move around in and explore different parts of it. So your friend could be over on the left-hand side of the maze hiding, and you could be on the right-hand side of the maze looking for for them. Right. Um, and there's some central system that's that's keeping track of all that stuff um, and keeping track of the relations between where your virtual thing is in relation to where their virtual thing is and what the dimensions of the map are. Um, and so there's multiple computing systems involved in those kind of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, systems. You have, the com you have the computing system, which is the individual PlayStation or Xbox, right. which has memory and a hard drive and all that stuff. And then you have the cloud-based system, which also right. has memory, and, and then you have the Internet-based relation between them. And so his idea is um, you can think of the simulation hypothesis in those kinds of terms, and you get a more interesting um, version of the simulation hypothesis and one that gives that can reca recapture some of these claims from quantum mechanics and ultimately he thinks give an account of free will free will as you know actions done um, outside of the causal system sort of like Kant said uh, um, where the causal system is the virtual simulated um, interactive environment that you and your friends are playing in and then your free actions are the ones that you do in your living room I mean that's the analogy oh oh oh, oh okay so, I, I mean, it's a way of cashing out that, making a, a concrete, more concrete, um, this kind of idea. I don't, it's interesting. I, I don't know if, I mean, I guess 
Yeah, I had to read. I read the paper a while ago, and yeah. I haven't read it carefully. Obviously, I don't know if he really wants to connect it to things like Kant and stuff. Seems like he would, though, because in his yeah. other work, he seems to be talking about Kant a lot, <laughs> like so, he gives an account about the categorical imperative. I don't know. So yeah, Marcus's work is interesting. I think maybe uh, we could include a link to the paper in like the show notes if, if this gets into the final edit. What was the name of the paper again? I think it's called a new theory of free will. Okay. Oh, sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really cool paper, and I only know about it because of the blog, uh, Philosopher's Cocoon, yeah. which I'm allegedly a contributor of, but have never contributed to. Yeah. Um, but he posted it there, and people were talking about it, so I went and checked it out because I like simulation and this kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a it's an interesting paper, some really original thinking in there, so I like it. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, more and more philosophers are are tackling these issues about like, you know, might we all be computer simulations or you know, could we be mind uploaded, and should we be mind uploaded? And uh, you know, a lot of this like futurological or science fictional stuff, and and philosophers, you know, for a long time have been interested in thought experiments and um, these weird counterfactual scenarios. But I feel like things are really picking up steam in in a in a certain kind of way. It's hard to put a finger on. It's like you know, a lot of people uh, discussing the singularity, and yeah. uh, a lot of this is like pretty high-profile stuff. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, it's funny. Just to tangent off on this for a second, you know, I know, you know, personally, Dave Chalmers, when he was writing his paper on the singularity, some people, uh, we won't mention names, but some people were were a little bit critical. <laughs> Uh, that that this was even like philosophy, you know, what is he doing? He's imagining that we're going to upload, and there's a lot of weird science fiction. Some people said, look, you know, this is not serious stuff, and I disagree. I'm on your side. I think it is serious stuff. I wrote a, a post on my blog about this a while ago, um, and I, you know, the singularity, even if there's like a point oh oh to the infinite zero chance of it, it's one of the most significant possible events in in all of human history. So. Yeah. We should worry about it to some extent. I, right. I think that you know, I take that kind of reasoning to serious to some extent. Um, but but also so but but then after he wrote that paper, you know, which I have a short little piece in the as a alleged commentary on it, but it's not really a commentary. It's kind of just me, you know, trying to jab at zombies like I like to do. But anyway, so you know, I think people that's part of it is that when a when a when a well known and well respected philosopher write something that's you know people can talk about then yeah. open the door for other people to do it and then if yeah. someone else writes a paper on the singularity uh, maybe someone will say oh it's not crazy you know people are talking about this so I yeah. think that's part of it but if I may also spin off in another direction please do I think, I think there's another part of it which is that um, you know I think that we're starting to realize uh, and by we I mean us as investigators into the nature of the mind we're starting to realize that computation is like maybe something like fundamental, maybe close to being fundamental. Like, yeah. um, so, you know, this, this starts with people like Turing and, and uh, the beginning of mathematically formulated theories of computation and, and church and, and those kinds of uh, people. Um, and, you know, church's thesis, the church-Turing thesis, the basic idea that um, uh, every effectively computable or algorithmically computable function is Turing-functionable computable, yeah. that idea that basically anything that a human can do can be done by a Turing machine, um, some people think that's like pretty profound in the sense that what that sort of points towards is, well, maybe human thinking can be captured in Turing machine 
notions. Right. Um, and then, of course, I mean, uh, one, some, pe some people, even like people like David Chalmers, who's a, a non-physicalist of all consciousness, he still argues that computation is going to be like the fundamental notion in a, psych a psychological science. Right. Um, and he gives a kind of novel and interesting account of what it means for a physical system to implement a computation. It's in terms of having these counterfactual relations, and the system has to be such that if you run it multiple times, it, it does things, and it's not just a one-off. And so, you know, I think that's, that's interesting. If it's right, it's interesting that, that what counts as, uh, in order for something to be a computation, is not just causal factors about the system, but counterfactual um, things about the system, like what it would do if it had been in this state, uh, would it yeah. go into that state? So that's kind of surprising, you might say, that these counterfactuals are important. So, but none though, so, I mean, I'm, I'm going maybe getting too crazy here, but one of the things I think that people are realizing is that this mathematical notion of computation, which had been around for a long time but really got serious in the 30s, um, is, is playing a really fundamental role in our theory about thinking and the mind yeah. and the nature of thinking in the mind. Um, and the more that we realize that this idea that really computation and, and its nature is this abstract mathematical thing, and this will bring me maybe to some work of that Kripke's been recently talking about, which I really like. Um, you know, I was at this uh, Kripke conference in Omaha where I presented a paper, and it was a really cool conference. Kripke himself was there, and he gave his talk um, uh, where he, he argues that the Church-Turing thesis is basically a corollary of, of the, of the uh, Gödel completeness theorem. So that's interesting. So the basic idea is, look, Gödel has this completeness theorem that says first order logic is complete, and then we can take any kind of computation and write out the instructions, the program basically, that governs the computation, and then we can translate that program into first order logic, and then first order logic is complete because that's what Gödel showed us, and so now we know that the uh, steps of the computation follow deductively from, um, uh, from the premises, from the premises of the argument, which just are the code, the instruction, basically. So if that's right, I think it is all right. I mean, uh, that basically computation really just is a special kind of deduction. Mathematical arguments are just uh, deductively valid arguments in first-order languages. If that's right, I mean, that's that really shows how general this is um, yeah. and how fundamental com computation is. So yeah. you're right, there are, there are people, the, the sci-fi stuff I think is important and fiction is important, but I think a lot of it comes from this like realizing that this stuff is not just mathematical abstractions but really has something important, usefully important yeah. to do with the way the mind is actually doing stuff. And one thing I would emphasize, and maybe this is um, you know, just kind of emphasizing a slightly different wording, um, but that this is showing the power of, of uh, syntactical systems. It's, it, it, it's showing the power of uh, merely mechanical systems. So there's one way of, yeah. of thinking about deductive validity it is um, proof theoretically so that you've got this, these, um, these purely syntactic operations that, of course, it will connect up to the semantical notion, right, which is completeness. Um, but that you're gonna you're gonna be able to you're gonna be able to uh, get all the semantically valid arguments via this set of uh, syntactic procedures. And one way of thinking that uh, about you know the Turing stuff is that uh, Turing's 
the 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 beauty of the of of Turing stuff is that Turing showed that there's the set of mechanical procedures. He's thinking of mechanisms in a in a kind of an abstract way. He doesn't care whether the mechanism is going to be made out of wood or going to be made out of metal or it could be made out of you know soul particles or ectoplasmic squiggle machines. But still, it's it's fundamentally there's uh, there's mechanical systems that will suffice for anything um, anything mathematically decidable, anything mathematically provable. It could be uh, arrived at by some kind of mechanical procedure. Yes, and that's and that's the great thing about Turing too is that first of all he starts he he sort of gives this really nice mathematical. Um, uh, formalization of what a Turing uh, of what a computation is in terms of Turing machines then you realize oh and then everybody is sort of realizing that all definitions of computation seems to be basically equivalent to Turing machine and sort of yep. lambda calculus and all that stuff you know blah 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 but then and that's already like pretty cool but then not only that but Turing goes and builds like one of these things yeah he's like hmm let me let me get put some resistors and capacitors together and actually make something that does this and then of course you get the what is that? I forget the name of it. It's the uh, the bomb, the B, the Bombay or whatever. You know that big thing that he builds, and then obviously that culminates in the Enigma machine, which wins yeah. World War Two. <laughs> it's like I, I mean, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's let's it, know. Come on, Turing won World War Two. Yeah. <laughs> let's just say it right let's now. Let's say it. You know, one thing I really like about Turing is this argument that he gives in his 1959 paper. This is the paper that's famous for being like the origin of the imitation game. We now know it as the Turing test. Yeah. He gives this little argument. He says, like, look, uh, if, you, if you grant that the brain is important for human cognition, like that what, what you think and, and your, maybe uh, also your conscious experiences, that's just like what your brain is doing. And uh, you further make the plausible, the highly plausible assumption that your brain is just finite. That uh, one way of putting it is like, look, your brain is just made out of a finite number of particles. And there's only a finite number of ways that the particles can interact, you know, because of like the way chemistry works and, and the way uh, valence bonding works. There's only a finite number of relevant um, positions that atoms can be I with respect to one another. So the brain is finitely describable. It's a it's a finite uh, machine. It's a finite system, and therefore whatever the brain does, it's capturable by a Turing machine. And then yeah. from there, like, it's a pretty quick argument to um, uh, artificial intelligence, that we, that we can have an artificial uh, duplicate of uh, Richard Brown or Pete Mandic. Um, for, you know, you get multiple realizability out of that. You get at least the first well, step that in way, you know, for I mean, mind uploading. LaGuardia would love that because I could teach, like, three times my teaching load. <laughs> we just have three, uh, three of you. <laughs> Three of me, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you you know, so that I, I think that's really important too, and the finite bit is really important that the brain is a finite thing. So we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back after the break.
I'm not sure. I'm afraid we need to use math. It kind of reminds me, you know, I don't know how much we want to go, I mean, if we want to keep this brain-based or if we want to keep this mathematical slash computational-based. I like both, but, you know, this, this gets us back to, I, I don't know, I was reading recently about this um, uh, debate between Hilbert and Frege. Do you know anything about this um, debate that these guys had? Allegedly, they wrote letters to each other, and Frege, I mean, Frege has some, like, he says some pretty funny things. He seems like kind of a dick, to be honest with you. This is like about the logicist program in, in mathematics, right? Um, yeah, it's it, but it's really about uh, the idea, I guess. Well, look, I'm not. This is above my pay grade, obviously. Uh, I'm not like a logician of the first order, but um, or a mathematician of these of this stature. But I mean, and from what I've been looking at, let me just give you what I think about it, and then we'll see if like if this is right or not. But uh, I think probably the logicism, psychologism stuff has something to do with it. But but here's the idea that at least as, as far as I understood it. Uh, so David Hilbert, you know, he's the one who wants to um, axiomatize everything. That's kind of one way of sort of putting Hilbert's program is just the idea that look, you want to you want to provide an axiomatized an axiomatized system for every mathematical for all mathematics for everything. That's Hilbert's program. Um, how do you do that? Well, he he tries to do it with geometry, and he has his book called Foundations of Geometry, where he uh, try, he shows a method for uh, deriving axioms for geometry. And the way he does it is by taking words, I mean, this is really complicated, but here's what, I mean, it's not that complicated once you see what he's doing, but it's describing it's a little bit complicated. So you take the terms that appear in Euclidean geometry, like point and line and plane, and those terms are used to define things of geometry, like for instance, for any two points on a plane, there's a straight line that connects them. That's that's uh, something that you can get out of uh, these basic definitions, and so that's a, a something in geometry. What he does then is to take those as like merely placeholders, and to de redefine them basically. So take the term point, redefine that as like the set of prime numbers. <laughs> so now point means set of prime numbers. It doesn't mean like what it means in Euclidean geometry. Now redefine plane similarly in terms of some property of the natural numbers or no, real numbers. And then you redefine line similarly. And then once you have them redefined in terms of the natural numbers, then you give some proof like that, you know, uh, uh, the set of natural numbers is going to include uh, this, I mean, excuse me, the set of prime numbers is going to include this number, which is prime. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying way too much here, but, but anyway, so you give some proof in the, in the, in the new redefined terms. Yeah. And then you go, yeah, see, okay, now I just proved that the um, that geometry is consistent because the proof I gave here has to be consistent. Uh, right. And I, as far as I can tell, the reasoning is vague, vaguely like this. If there were some contradiction, you would be able to prove it in the redefined system. Right. But you can't. So therefore, right. the original system, which is you redefined it from, is consistent as well. There's no contradictions there. And that's called relative consistency. Um, so that's, that's Hilbert's kind of strategy for how you're going to axiomatize these other kinds of sciences. Um, whereas Frege has a different kind of approach. Uh, and, you know, Frege has this really weird view that uh, you can't just take these sentences like, um, you know, uh, for every two points on a plane, there's a straight line that connects them. You can't just take them and redefine them because they have, like, 
they signify thoughts which are objective and mind independent and therefore you can't change their meanings in this way they aren't just I mean if you sort of zoom out the real debate here is the debate between like a structuralist position yeah. where you just have like relations of things and you could define them however you want and then yeah. manipulate them and then the kind of essentialist position where you have no there's these things out there which are a certain way independent of like uh, whatever you want to yeah. so I mean so the, the way Frege would, <laughs> would put this is that well you haven't proved that the axioms of geometry are consistent you've like changed the meanings of the axioms and then yeah. so you prove some theorem about um, about you know the numbers you haven't proved a theorem about geometry yeah. whereas Hilbert thought he was proving a theorem of geometry in this weird extended way um, so how, are, do you what do you think about this do you yeah you know I wrestle with this because there's a there's a version of this kind of structuralism that you can describe as a, a set theoretic Pythagoreanism yeah I love that you stuff know, the gist of Pythagoreanism is everything is mathematical so even rocks and trees are really just something mathematical and, and one way of doing set theoretic uh, Pythagoreanism is you start off with um, you start off with literally nothing the empty set and uh, you throw in a little bit of set theory and uh, part by of the one way of the can I just correct you for a second because the empty set is not literally nothing what? well the empty set is a thing it's the empty set I mean it's a set sets are things yeah. <laughs> well yes right 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 yeah it and, has, and further, well what what, what yeah, are you talking no, about you're right you're right you're right you're right you're right. It has power sir. sets and there's you, a whole... You're right. <laughs> Why are you still talking? You're okay, right. Okay, go ahead. So, you know, uh, and, and another part of set theory besides saying that uh, the empty set is a thing is um, when, you, when you're talking about, uh, say, a set uh, and its member or members, you're talking about two different things. So you take something and then you take the set containing that thing, you're talking about two different things. So you've got these like those are like basic ideas of set theory. You right, start but with the, the, and the two different yeah. and the difference is that the things are just things, but the set is a mathematical object which is um, uh, defined by the membership relation. Yep, yep. So that right. the the things yeah. just are out there, but the set of those things is this abstract mathematical thing which it says these things are members of the set. So that's the right. fundamental notion of set theory is membership. Yeah, I agree. So you start with uh, you start with the empty set, and then you um, then you have the set containing the empty set, and then you have the the set containing uh, the empty set, and the set containing the empty set. Yeah, you're, you're doing, doing power sets now. Uh, in, and what you well, what, one thing you're doing is you're building up numbers. So this is like the 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 von Neumann way of of, of constructing numbers out of sets. Right. Um, once you've got numbers, you can start talking about sets of numbers. And if you want to talk about space-time points, you can have um, uh, four tuples, four tuples, right? So you've got a set of four numbers. These are giving you uh, the three coordinates of uh, spatial dimensions and, and one time coordinate. Now you want to start populating space-time. You want to have space-time occupants. Well, you populate it with particles. How many particles do you want? I don't know how many particles there are, but let's say there's 57. So... Uh, zero uh, will be no particle at all, and one through fifty-seven will correspond to the to the fifty-seven kinds of particles. And so now we've got five tuples. The fifth um, the fifth place is reserved for the the particles, 
And then, uh, so now we can populate space-time points with particles. And now that we've got particles, we can start defining things. You want to define uh, hydrogen atoms? Well, it's, a hydrogen atom is going to be a set of spatially, spatio-temporally contiguous uh, particles. And eventually we'll get to, like, uh, your brain. What's your brain? It's just a whole bunch of particles, finite number of particles, that, like we said earlier. Um, so, the, so, so your brain is a bunch of particles that are located in space-time. Uh, what it means for there to be a particle located in space-time is just to have this five-tuple. What it means to have this five-tuple is you've just got a whole bunch of sets of sets of sets of the empty set. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's set theoretic Pythagoreanism. People like even Quine has flirted with this. And I gotta say, I like, it bothers me. And, and <laughs> what do you, uh, I love it. What do you mean? And further, it bothers me that it bothers me because it starts <laughs> making me uh, feel like some kind of qualiophile, right? Yes. Because <laughs> the, the, the thing that red, bothers me. Baby, is, the red. Ah, I'm so conflicted, <laughs> right? Because on the one hand, it's like, this seems crazy. There's, there's no qualitative. There's no qualitative differences between things. Ultimately, what's yeah. really real is the empty set, yeah. and everything is a logical construction thereof. It's pretty and, cool. And you could have you could have an isomorphic structure that, instead of starting with the empty set and then sets thereof, starts with basketballs. So imagine a universe in which there is a single basketball. Well, in that universe, there would also be the set containing the basketball, and the set containing the set containing the basketball, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, according to this like this relationalism, there's really no difference between the two universes. They would be structurally the same. Right. Um, the basketball universe would still have Richard Brown in it. It would have Richard Brown's brain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but isn't there a difference between the, the empty set universe and the basketball universe? Isn't there some kind of like qualitative difference? Part of me says. Part of me says like it's not, this is not good enough. There has to be some kind of like fundamental er elements that aren't the empty set. And, well, uh, I mean, look, but it's, I, what your argument is suggests is that there has to be a, an er element. But if the empty set is a thing, then that's... It's that's about as er as you get. The, it's, yeah. a, it's the ultimate thing. It's the empty set. It's not nothing. That's yeah. that's something else. That's 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 you know the uh, extension. Of but the then empty set. But the, there's no the empty set has no no extension. But, but the no empty set itself is um is a thing that contains this other thing. But one way of describing this um this empty set construction is that there's no intrinsic properties. Or the yeah. only intrinsic property is like the the intrinsic property of being the empty set, and everything right. else is purely relational. And if you do have qualiophile intuitions, and I will I'll admit that I sometimes have those intuitions. There's something kind of disturbing about this this well, lack of qualitativeness. I, be not disturbed, young Skywalker, uh, because you know. So this gets us to the you know Russellian monism and a lot of these kinds of issues. We're kind of moving away from the reason I invoked Hilbert Frege, but that's fine. I mean. I was going to talk about finitary methods versus infinite things. and Oh, Hilbert's I'd be happy to get back to that, too. Right, yeah, because I was going to talk about Hilbert's complaints that, you know, against Cantor's um, um, progression of infinite infinities. Oh, I definitely <laughs> want to talk about that. Uh, and, and especially Hilbert's idea that, no, that, that there's a special prized section of mathematics, which is finitary. Um, all the stuff that we talk about, finite stuff, that's somehow special. 
Um, and then that sort of I see I think connects up to this Turing idea you were just talking about that the brain is a finite system. But so let's let's put a pin in that because I, let's continue yeah I'm writing down about, Cantor and Hilbert because I definitely want to get back to that those guys. Yeah, and it connects to this Frege stuff. But um, yeah. but but you're right. So the issue here is whether you can have just a system of relations without something that's fundamentally being related. Yeah. So uh, in the set theoretic Pythagoreanism stuff, you know, you have just the empty set. That sounds about as close to nothing as you can get, but it's not really nothing. It's it's something. It's a set. Right. It's a mathematical object. And so if you have something, you could build other things. You don't get. It's not like getting something fr from nothing. Um, Fair enough. So no, but maybe you want basketballs there. Um, that's fine. <laughs> right. Uh, and maybe you could put, you know, qualia there. That's, you right. know, I guess that's what Chalmers' idea and Galen Strassen's idea right. is that, you know, the thing that's uh, that's grounding all the structure are these, excuse me, fundamental qualitative properties like phenomenal red, phenomenal green, um, maybe phenomenal pain. I mean, I don't know. Uh, although it's hard to when you press them on the details, they say right. who knows really, but yeah. Um, they're still working on it, and that's one of right. the exciting areas right now is to see them develop this uh, reductio. Oh, there we are. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, because you know what? I mean, to be fair, uh, to be fair, um, I I do think that uh, ultimately, if you take that view, so let's let's say you do take this view, uh, you have the structures and you define it however you want. I like empty sets, and and so you say, but what's what's underneath all that? Okay, well, there's qualia. Um, now you ask yourself, well, are the qualia physical or not? Uh, well, I think at that by the time you've done that, you've entered verbal territory. Yep. Answer to the question, are those qualia now physical or not, is purely 1,000% verbal. So if that turned out to be true, I would say, you know, the analogy for me is always magnetism and electromagnetism in particular and the field in, in particular. And you look back at history and you find these people and they're just like saying, look, fields, what are you talking about? That's crazy. How could there be this unextended thing? I mean, it seems extended. Yeah, it takes up all of space time and there's a value for it. It's never non-zero. It's like yeah. it's not arbitrarily close to zero, but there's always a value for it. Even infinitely far away, there's a value for the gravitational field of Earth. It's like, what? That's That sounds so weird. But... You can't do physics without it. It's it's firmly entrenched, and so they just said, you know what? Fuck it. It's a fundamental feature of reality. <laughs> and now the now we have quantum field theory. Bam. So sometimes you when you when you do something like you can't, and the basic strategy is when you find something you can't do without, um, but which doesn't fit into your theoretical structure, you add it as a fundamental feature, and then you go on with your life. <laughs> and it's that's happened like so many times. You know, uh, I, we could just look back over and over. It's happened. Negative numbers, for instance. People said, negative numbers? What are you talking about? That's insane. No, we can't do without them. Well, add them. Negative numbers. Boom. Uh, imaginary numbers. What? That's crazy. I'm at, not on the real number line. Where are they? Okay, so blah, blah, blah. Tr in, Trans-infinite numbers. Uh, by the way, I was reading some about this recently, and Cantor, I, I never quite thought of it this way, but one of the really super interesting things is that Cantor proves that there are you know, uncountable infinite sets. Uh, that's the technical language. But anyway, uh, that the that the number of uh, real numbers is greater than the number of uh, whole numbers or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, but he does it without ever providing one example. He doesn't ever show you one of these numbers. He just always says, you know, there's <laughs> there's more numbers than any given list of the, yeah. the numbers you think is complete. So I thought that was interesting. He never provides an example. But anyway, so. Um, <laughs> 
so 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 if you take that that kind of view that there's those things here, that's my point, is that that's a verbal issue uh, because at this point it's, you can just appeal to the magnetism stuff and say, look, you know, consciousness we can't do without it. We're not going to be Dan Dennett and say things that are literally absurd. So we're going to hey, keep our wits. We're going to keep our wits about hey, ourselves. Wait a minute, buddy. <laughs> Sorry, but it's true. <laughs> uh, we're going to keep our wits about ourselves, and consciousness is non-negotiable. Like I'm, we're not going to negotiate about consciousness. It's, it's there. If you really can't fit it into the, the the science that we have, which is this functional, structural, kind of relational business, then the only reasonable option is to add it as a fundamental entity. Like I'm fully on board with that being the only reasonable alternative. I just don't buy the the second claim there that you can't fit it into the structural, functional stuff. So uh, I think so that even agree. I think that even in the empty set world, <laughs> where it's just like constructions out of the empty set. You're going to get consciousness, um, and that's because you know if I if this is that world, then what we call biology just really is constructions out of the empty set. So I'm I'm happy with that being okay as long as some brains are involved, and as long as brains are constructed out of the empty set, and as long as it's my brain being in various states that makes it the case that it, there are certain things that it's like for me to feel various things. Uh -huh. Then whatever the fundamental nature of the brain is, like you know that's physics. That's that's fine Wait, with so me. But you, you, uh, you know, so you, I think, agree with Dennett and I that um, qualia aren't going to be some fundamental thing, some fundamental intrinsic property. I agree with Dennett and you that we don't know that it is. <laughs> uh, but it could be. I mean, it's it's a legitimate open possibility that consciousness is fundamental. I, I'm so I think the difference between someone like me, who's a qualia realist but also an optimist, um, and someone like Chalmers, who's a qualia realist but a pessimist, uh -huh. um, is that we're qualia we, we like we we have qualia, we know it. And we're not gonna we're not gonna negotiate about that. And if that means you ha and if and if you can't like weasel your way out and if you don't think science is gonna help, then you know there's no other option except fundamental added in. Because by the way, same with same with electromagnetism. No one's going to get rid of electromagnetism once we have the equations and once we see. I mean, you can't you can't do without it. So you have to add it in as a fundamental thing. Then you see how useful it is and what you can do with it. And you know, so now it hangs around. But then, um, just to clarify, what your optimism is? You're optimistic that we can explain consciousness in terms of stuff that's not conscious. Um, I'm op. Well, no, I'm. So no. For example, I, we no, can no, explain. No. We can explain what water is, um, and the um, explanons will make reference to to things that are individually not water. Right. So but see, well, hold on. So hold on. So it depends on what you mean by explain. So for it, I, 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 my optimism includes you know the thousand flowers blooming kind of optimism. I don't I'm not hedged I don't feel like I've committed to any single particular view about this here. What I think is that right. there's a lot of them and they all uh, they all uh, any one of them at this point might be the one that works. Uh, none of them have really been definitively ruled out. So and I would compare this to the what Quine tries to do but he doesn't do it as well in my opinion when he writes word and object and he basically tries to show, look, you know, behaviorism can do most of the stuff that people think it can't do. And then everyone afterwards said, oh, he's a fucking behaviorist. <laughs> and no, he, maybe he wasn't. He just said, look, we can, we, the physicalist can say something about this stuff. And by the way, you know, 
50,000 years from now, who knows what we'll say. But right now, we can use these tools and say this yeah. about it. And so I want to have that kind of attitude that, you know, we have some tools around. Yeah. And uh, some of those tools look promising. And they haven't been refuted by any a priori reasoning. There's no, like, definitive refutation of them. Um, they haven't been shown to be inconsistent with science. There's no scientific refutation of them. So, therefore, they're open, open possibilities. But that's all that they are is open possibilities. Right. Uh, and on the table, along with those open possibilities, are also fundamental ism <laughs> okay and, and epiphenomenalism and epiphenomenalism is like if that's true then you know right life sucks but if it's true it's true and fundamentalism is like if that's true then life life is really weird <laughs> um, but if it's true it's true and then but I think that the important area is these other two areas where we don't know that they're false and one of the important um, options is that you can't explain it so that's why I was hedging and saying oh no 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 is because yeah. yes one of the options that's open is, yes, we can give an explanation. Um, yeah. And I have a story about how that would go. It's roughly like similar to the kind of story that Chalmers tells, except for that you put qualia optimism in place of qualia pessimism. Um, and so, yeah, I think that you could be a rationalist and the 2 Ds semantics and all that stuff and still think that, you know, this stuff works and that ideal reasoners could come to know about consciousness just based on physical facts. So I think that's totally possible. But I also think it's possible that, you know, someone uh, who thinks that identities don't get explained could be right. And that there just are these brute identities in nature. Um, and water is H2O might be one of them. And you don't, you don't explain them, but you use them to explain other things. That's one way of taking Ned Block's view uh, is that, you know, water is H2O doesn't, um, doesn't get explained. You posit it as fundamental. See, again, this fundamental. You See, posit it as fundamental and then use that to explain a bunch of other stuff which you, which you want. Well, what, you so know now, what both of those seem like live options to me. What bothers me... Um, oh, and by the way, just to, to wrap it all up, and also yeah. structuralism seems like a real option to me. Um, of the real hardcore, like Lady Man and Ross, structuralism, like, you know, all there is is the empty sense structuralism. I, yeah. I think that's a live option, too. Yeah. So I don't think any of these have been refuted. So we're going to have to wrap things up for this episode, but we are going to continue the discussion in our next episode, and we're going to focus there on the question of what the nature of explanation is. I'm Richard Brown, Associate Professor of Philosophy at CUNY LaGuardia, here for Space Time Mind. <laughs> That's gold. You're a star. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And I'm Pete Mandick from William Patterson University. You've been listening to the podcast Space Time Mind. Our musical theme is provided by the band Quiet Karate Reflex, a band that Richard and I are both members of, along with Hakwan Lau and Alex Kiefer. And the name of the song is Aristotelian Eye Jelly. Until next time, we'll see you in space time.